Well, there's a, a tension that we have all experienced in life, that we've all felt in life, and it's the tension between where we are and where we want to be. Uh, where we are as men, where we are as women, where we are as mothers and fathers, uh, where we are as a single man, single woman, where we are as a student, and, and where we want to be. Where we are in our faith versus where we want to be. Uh, where we are in our level of fulfillment, contentment in life, and really where we want to be. Where we are in our character and where we want to be as it relates to our character. So we've all felt the tension between where we are and where we want to be. And the reason there's tension in that is because we all know intuitively that we cannot get to the place that we wanna go by staying where we are. That none of us can get to the place that we want to go by staying where we are. That none of us will ever be who we wanna be, be who we think we could be, or be who we think we should be, or do what we think we wanna do, or could do or should do, and go to the places that we feel like we wanna go, and could go, and should go. We can't do that if we stay where we are. Jesus predicted the church. And when Jesus predicted the church, he predicted a movement of people. He predicted people like you and people like me, people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He predicted the church and then he went and died for the sins of the world. And on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. And when he was raised from the dead, he defeated sin and death. And as the one who defeated sin and death, Jesus became the head of the church. And Jesus announced to his followers that he had all authority in heaven and on earth. And with all authority as head of the church, Jesus looked at his disciples who would become the leaders of the church. He gave them in that moment their marching orders. He took them outside of Jerusalem as far as Bethany. And before he ascended back to his father in heaven, Jesus gave the church leaders the marching orders for the church from that day forward. And this was his marching orders. Love and go. Love and go. The great commandment and the great commission, the two rails that the church moves forward on. More specifically, the marching orders for the church was simply this, to love God, love people, make disciples. Love God and demonstrate it, authenticate it by loving people, loving people the way that you love yourself and more specifically and more demanding, love people the way that Jesus has loved you and make disciples. Jesus said, I want you to go love God, love people and make disciples. And then Jesus defined for them how large of a scope of a mission this was. He says, of all the nations. I want you to go love God, love people and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus looked at his disciples that last day before he went back to heaven to his father. Jesus essentially looked at his guys and he said, hey, listen, I want you to know what you need to do from this moment on. I want you and I want you to go forward and I want you to move from this place and I want you to go tell people what I taught you. And I want you to tell people what I said. I want you to tell people what I meant by what I said. I want you to tell them about what I did and for whom I did it and what it means for them. I want you to go tell my story because guys, you know this, God has done something extraordinary in your midst. You have seen God interrupt your life and interrupt history. And God has done some extraordinary in your midst and I want the world to know about it. So Jesus essentially that day looked at his disciples and said, there's a world that needs to know. So you can't stay here. You gotta get moving because future faith rests upon your shoulders. The future of faith rests upon your decision to either stay here or move forward. 
And that's what Jesus announced to his disciples, those who would become the leaders of the church that day. Jesus ascended back into heaven and basically they looked at one another and someone decided, well, that's that. We can't stay here. And so they left and then they went to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, they went to an upper room and they started to pray. It was the day of Pentecost and we're told that the Spirit of God fell in that room as the Spirit of God had never fallen before. And in that moment, a movement was born. In that moment, the church was born. And some extraordinary things were happening as a result of the Spirit of God in that room. And as good of a place as what the upper room was, there came a moment there in the upper room where the 120 that were there had to look at each other and say, you know what? As good as it is here in this moment, we can't stay here. So they left the upper room and they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and they began to tell the story of Jesus, how he was crucified, how he was buried, how he was raised from the dead, how he was the son of God and he was the savior of the world. And we're told that 3000 people on that first day were baptized. They became followers of Jesus and all of a sudden, the church is a movement just like Jesus predicted it would be. A movement of people who believe that Jesus was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. A few days later, we're told that the church numbered 5,000 people, most likely 5,000 men. So counting the women and the children, it was more than 5,000. The church, all of a sudden, within the first few weeks, it is exploding in growth. It is exploding in numbers. And Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the book that we call Acts, which is basically a historical record of the first century Christian church. Here's what he said about the Christians in those days. He says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Messiah. So they did exactly what Jesus told them, kind of. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do, sort of. They were telling people in Jerusalem, let us tell you about what God has done in our midst. God's son was crucified. We watched him die. He was buried. He came back to life and we are witnesses of it. And so they started telling everybody in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, the book of Acts says that they filled Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, with the story of Jesus. But here's the important distinction. Two or three years go by and the church is still in Jerusalem. Two or three years go by, they're telling everybody in Jerusalem. Everybody in Jerusalem has essentially heard about Jesus from Nazareth. They've heard his story. They've heard from the witnesses of his resurrection. They filled all of Jerusalem with the story. But three years after the resurrection, three years after Jesus said, hey, love God, love people, make disciples of all the nations to the ends of the earth, three years later, the greatest Christians, perhaps in the history of Christians, were still in Jerusalem. They were doing what Jesus told them to do, kind of. Jesus told them to start in Jerusalem, but to go to the ends of the earth. Three years in, they're still in Jerusalem, but they're making a difference where they are. The temple, it gets you know, basically offended, gets threatened. You know, The temple authorities, they thought that they killed Jesus and dealt with that, but now there's these Jesus followers who said, no, God raised him from the dead, and now they're numbering into the thousands in Jerusalem. So the temple is threatened. Annas, the high priest, he's wanting to preserve this temple tradition and Judaism as a faith. And so he thinks to himself, something's got to be done. Something's got to be done about this Jesus movement. There's thousands of them right here in our back door, right here in the city. 
And so Annas thinks to himself, this is something that has to be done. We need somebody. We need somebody that we can count on. We need someone who's determined. We need someone who's type A. We need, we need a leader. We need a zealot. We need a believer in the cause. We need someone who's scholarly. We need someone who's a bit charismatic. And we need someone who's aggressive enough to get the job done. Because we need to stop this Jesus movement. And Annas the high priest found his man in a guy that we know as Saul of Tarsus a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a zealot for the Jewish faith, an up-and-coming star within Judaism. And so Annas hired Saul of Tarsus essentially and said, Saul, the temple rests upon your shoulders. The future of Jewish faith rests upon your shoulders. I want you to do whatever is necessary by whatever means necessary to stop out the church, to stop out the Jesus movement. And so Saul decided that he would make a big statement from the very beginning. That, that he would score so fast and so big that he would cause the Jesus followers to quit and to walk off the field. He decided from the very beginning that he would put one of their leaders to death. A young deacon by the name of Stephen. And it says in the book of Acts that Saul approved of their killing of him. Him being Stephen. He allowed Stephen, one of the leaders in the church, one of the first Christians that we are introduced to in the book of Acts that was a leader in the church. Saul said, we're gonna kill him. We're gonna stone him to death. And they stoned Stephen to death for his faith in Jesus. And Luke says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem because that's the only place that the church currently is. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. All of a sudden, these Jewish Christians who had gotten comfortable in Jerusalem, these Jewish Christians who looked at Jesus before he sent it back into heaven and they heard him say, I want you to go to all the nations, to the ends of the earth and make disciples. Those disciples had gotten comfortable in Jerusalem, but now things are so uncomfortable in Jerusalem. Now things are so unpleasant in Jerusalem. Now that persecutions broke out, the followers of Jesus look at each other and reluctantly say, we can't stay here. We gotta get out of here. And the disciples of Jesus fled from the city of Jerusalem. The leaders, the apostles stayed behind, but the vast majority of Jesus followers left and they went to Judea and they went to Samaria. And it is not a coincidence that they went to Judea and Samaria because that's exactly where Jesus told them to go. But I think Jesus wanted them to go there immediately. I don't think that Jesus wanted them to sit back on their heels for three years and camp out in Jerusalem and get comfortable and get settled and have to have a persecution ruffle their feathers enough to get them moving. But nonetheless, this persecution got them moving. And the movement that Jesus predicted is moving again. It had gotten stuck in Jerusalem, but now it's moving. They go to Judea, they go to Samaria, they start telling people about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about how he died, how he's buried, how he's raised from the dead. He is the son of God. He is the savior of the world. And so now the message gets out of Jerusalem. Now it's in Judea and Samaria. About a year later, about a year later, something big happens. I mean, it was a game changer. I mean, it, was, it changed the momentum of the game completely. It will alter church history from going forward. It was a really, really big deal what happened about a year later after all of these believers got out of Jerusalem. A year later, on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus, Annas' hired hand, 
The man who single-handedly was leading the assault against Christians to stop it out. He's on his way to Damascus to serve arrest papers for any Christians who might be up there. And as he's going to Damascus, he's blinded by a bright light. And there on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the Jesus that was crucified, buried, and is now very much alive. And that day, Saul of Tarsus' life began to change. The immediate change was he went from seeing to being blind. Now he's blinded by the light. He's traveling with some gentlemen who have to walk him the rest of the way to Damascus. As they're bringing him into Damascus, elsewhere in the city of Damascus, there is a disciple by the name of Ananias. Ananias is in his home when God appears to him in a vision and says to Ananias, Ananias, I need you to do something for me. And Ananias says, what's that, Lord? He said, I need you to go to the house of Judas, down on Straight Street. And I need you to go into Judas's house on Straight Street, and I need you to ask for a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. He's been blinded, and you will find him praying. I want you to go ask for him. And <laughs> Ananias, he's no dummy. He's thinking, Lord, that sounds good and dandy, but I have heard about Saul of Tarsus. I know about this guy. I know what he does to followers of Jesus. And then the Lord spoke to Ananias and said, but he is my chosen instrument. I'm gonna use this man to speak to the Gentiles and Gentiles, those were non-Jewish people. I'm gonna use this man to speak to the Gentiles and to their kings. He's gonna be expecting you, Ananias, so go. Ananias went, he asked for Saul and he found Saul praying. He placed his hands on Saul, who we now call Paul, and he received his sight back. And almost immediately, Saul of Tarsus, now Paul, begins to preach all over Damascus. And all the Jewish people in Damascus, they can't make sense of it because they've heard of how their faith was resting upon this assault that Saul of Tarsus was leading against the Jesus followers. And now all of a sudden, the guy who was leading the charge against the Jesus movement is now part of the Jesus movement. He's preaching that Jesus was crucified, that he's now alive, and that he's a witness of it. And the Jewish people were so upset by it in Damascus, they conspired to kill Paul. So they take him in a very clandestine way out of Damascus, and they take him back south to Jerusalem. Now, as Paul is headed back to Jerusalem, he's thinking to himself, well, if I'm going to Jerusalem, there, there's one group of people I've got to meet with. Who do you think he wanted to meet with? He wanted to meet with the apostles. He wanted to meet with Peter and James and John and the guys who walked with Jesus and followed Jesus. He wanted to meet with those guys. He had some questions for those guys. So when he requested a meeting with the apostles, the apostle says, no way. We're not meeting with this guy because they thought he was up to something. They thought that this was trickery. But then a guy by the name of Barnabas, who was part of the first church, he was one of the early Christians, Barnabas, he went to the apostles and he said, guys, I've heard this guy preach. He's the real deal. You need to take a meeting with this guy. And so Barnabas brought Paul to the apostles. And we have no idea what all they talked about, but undoubtedly they exchanged stories about how they came to faith in Jesus and what they remember Jesus saying. And at the end of all of that, Paul in Jerusalem begins to preach again. He's preaching all over Jerusalem, in Annas' city, in his backyard. Now all of a sudden, the guy for whom the Jewish faith was counting on is no longer 
in their corner. And he begins to preach in such a way that the Jewish people in Jerusalem conspire and they say, we gotta kill this guy. We gotta get rid of him. Because now he's one of them. How many more people are gonna become one of them? How many of our best are now gonna become followers of Jesus? And so they started to conspire to kill Paul. And so the disciples, they got Paul out of town and they sent him north to a place called Tarsus. Now, this is really interesting, and I know what you're thinking. I don't care about this. You should care about this, and you'll be glad I told you about this in just a few moments, so fake it until we make it, okay? So, they send Paul to Tarsus. He's gonna drop off the map. He's gonna drop completely out of the narrative for the next seven to eight years. For the next seven or eight years, he's just out of sight. He's out of mind. He's up there doing his own deal. He's preaching and teaching in some places, but by and large, we don't know what he's up to. Seven or eight years is gonna go by. But when Paul leaves town after he's been converted, this is what Acts says. It says, then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, because that's where they've expanded to at this point. They enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Now again, the same thing begins to happen. They got comfortable in Jerusalem for about three years. Persecution broke out, so they went to Judea and Samaria. But then the persecution ended, and then they stopped. They got comfortable again. They decided, we're gonna stay here. This is a good place to be. Things are working out, the church is growing. There's new people getting baptized. The church is growing in numbers, but it's not expanding in territory. They are not headed in the direction of all nations. They are not headed in the direction of the ends of the earth. The movement has once again slowed down. And this is where we are at about 10 or so years after the resurrection. 10 or so years after Jesus said, I want you to love and go. The numbers are increasing, but things have stalled a bit in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Luke records, he goes on, he says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution when they left Jerusalem, that broke out when Stephen was killed, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word among Jews only. Now, don't miss this. For the first 10 years of the church, now when we talk about the first Christians, we make them into the greatest all-stars ever, and, and they were. We make them into some of the greatest men and women of church history, and they were. But they were very much far from perfect. 10 years in, and the only people that they're telling about Jesus are Jewish people. 10 years in, and the only people that they're telling about grace and love and forgiveness are people who look like them, sound like them, who believe like them. 10 years in. You would think that the people who walked with Jesus, heard Jesus, watched him ascend back into heaven, and heard him say, go to all the nations would not be content at 10 years in only telling other Jewish people about Jesus. When Jesus had so clearly said, this message is for the nations. So the church has made it about 300 miles north and 80 miles south in 10 years. 300 miles north and 80 miles south, 10 years in. Then Luke says, but some of them, some of them, because usually it doesn't start with all of them. And most of the time, something big doesn't even begin with most of them. 
Most of the time when God does something big, it begins with some of them. It begins with a few of them. Uh, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch. Went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks. Now the Greeks, another word for Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Do you know who else is Gentile? Most of us are Gentile, unless you are Jewishly ethnic. You are a Gentile. And so now all of a sudden, some people, some real risk takers, rule breakers, protocol breakers, began to tell Greeks also about the good news of the Lord Jesus. And it says that the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people in Antioch believed and turned to the Lord. Now, this is a big deal in the book of Acts because now all of a sudden the hub of activity is moving from the city of Jerusalem to the city of Antioch. And the apostles who are still leading things down in Jerusalem, they hear the story about all these Gentiles getting saved up there in Antioch. They've already heard about Cornelius and Peter. Cornelius was the first Gentile to get saved. And that's another story for another day. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks because it was a really, really big deal. So now all of a sudden they hear that not only one Gentile has been saved, but a whole flock of Gentiles are flooding into the church in Antioch, the third largest city in all the empire, a very paganistic city, perhaps the most educated city in the empire. And so they decide that they're going to send Barnabas, their trusted friend up there to check things out, see what's going on. So Barney, he goes up to Antioch, checks things out. And when he gets up there, he looks at this whole thing and he thinks to himself, wow, this is a game changer. This church looks nothing like the church in Jerusalem. This church looks nothing like the churches in Judea and Samaria. This is a church of Gentile and Jewish people. This is a church where multi-ethnic people are coming together. All of a sudden, for the first time, 10 years in, the walls that still existed between Jews and Gentiles and different ethnicities were just now coming down. Think about that. Some of the first leaders of the church were still holding on to prejudice. Some of the first leaders of the church were still holding on to misinterpretations of the Old Testament text. There were still walls existing, but they began to fall down in the most dramatic way in the city of Antioch. And Barnabas, he looks at all this and he says, this is going to change everything. This is going to change everything. He decides, well, since I'm in Antioch, I'm going to go to Tarsus. I've got, I've, got to find, I've got to find Paul. He goes up to Tarsus, finds Paul, brings Paul back to Antioch, and they stay there for a year. And it says that the church just kept growing. Within all this diversity, within this very pagan culture. See, we think that the more pagan the culture gets, the less acceptable Jesus seems to be to people the less attractive Jesus seems to be to people. But throughout history, the more diverse the culture was, the more ethnically diverse the culture was, the more religiously diverse the culture was, the more open it seemed to be to the unique message of Jesus. That was true in Antioch, absolutely undeniably true in Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas, they stay there for about a year. Then the people in Antioch decide they're gonna send an offering down to Jerusalem for that church down there. Paul and Barnabas, they take the offering down to Jerusalem, but they can't wait to get back to Antioch because that is where the hub of activity is happening. So they go back to Antioch, and this is what Luke says. He says, now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and there were teachers. 
While they were there worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and after they prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Now you could read that scripture all day and probably not appreciate how significant it is. This is one of the most significant passages in all of the New Testament because we cannot overstate what was happening in this moment. 10 years in, the church has only gone 300 miles north and 80 miles south. But because of a group of believers, men and women just like you, because God started doing a new thing among those people in Antioch, there was a group of Christians there that began to think to themselves, we can't stay here. If our Lord, our Savior said, go to the ends of the earth. If our Lord, our Savior said, I want you to go make disciples of all nations. If everyone is invited in, if it's for whosoever, no matter who, no matter what, if everyone is indeed welcome, then we can't stay here in this city. There is a world to tell. There is a world to reach. And so they decided, and so they prayed, and they fasted, and they felt like God speaking to them to say, Paul and Barnabas, that's the two guys that need to lead this charge. You can't stay here. They can't stay here. We can't stay here. And so in that moment, as they were praying and fasting, and here, here's why this is important to you. I guarantee you that none of them in that moment understood how momentous that moment was. Because in moments, we are rarely aware of how momentous the moment will become. If we knew how momentous the moment would become, we would approach moments differently. But because we don't know most of the time when moments will become momentous, sometimes we miss our moments. In this moment, they probably had no idea what hung in the balance. At this particular point in time, the gospel of Jesus had not expanded westward. At this particular time, none of the letters of Paul, which would make up nearly half of the New Testament, none of those letters have been written. So in this moment, half the New Testament hung in the balance. The West hung in the balance. You and me hung in the balance. The world hung in the balance. When they decided we can't stay here, we're going to send them off. And that's exactly what they did. And Paul and Barnabas left and they went to places like Cyprus and they went to places like Poseidon. They went to places like Iconium. They went to places like Lystra. And in places like Lystra, Paul was stoned and he was left for dead, but he didn't quit. He didn't throw in the towel. He didn't suck his thumb. He didn't whine. He didn't take his ball. He didn't go home. He had a job to do. He had a mission. He had a calling. The Lord has spoken. What else could he do? He couldn't stay there. Even when he was laying there left for dead, there came a moment in Paul's mind where he said, I can't stay here. I got to get up. I got to keep on going. So he went on to Derby. And then they circled back around and they went to Antioch and they got the church together. And it says on arriving back in Antioch, they got the church together. They reported all that God had done through them and how God had opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they reported everything that went on. And then you know what they did? They said, we can't stay here. We gotta go back. So that's exactly what they did. They were going back and they were gonna revisit some of the cities that they visited the first time around. When Paul has a vision of a man who is in Macedonia 
saying, Paul, we need you over here. You need to come over here, Paul. And Paul changed the plans. He altered the agenda. And he went to Macedonia and it marked the first time that the gospel had left Asia and had arrived in Europe. It's moving further west. He goes to places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth and he'll spend three years in Ephesus. He'll say goodbye to the church at Ephesus because he's planning on going to Jerusalem and he knows what's gonna happen in Jerusalem. He knows he's gonna be arrested, but he's got a plan. Because Paul had one place on his mind, he had one thing on his mind, and it was Rome. It was the heart of the empire. It was the eternal city. Because Paul knew that if he could get the message of Jesus to Rome, he could get the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus had told them to. So Jesus directing them all to keep going. And Paul, perhaps believing those words more than anyone else, he does end up in Jerusalem. He does end up arrested. He's taken to Caesarea Maritima. He's tried. He stands before Agrippa and Felix and all the rest. And he appeals his case to Caesar in Rome. And he's placed on a ship. And he's sent to the eternal city, the heart and the capital of the empire. Because he was not content at any point to stay where he was in his story, their story reminds us for the sake of our story that we will never be who God wants us to be, we'll never do what God wants us to do or achieve what God wants us to achieve by staying where we are. The book of Acts ends this way, for two whole years. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to see him. This is Paul in Rome. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. This verse is 20 years after the church in Antioch prayed and fasted, placed their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them out. 20 years, 20 years after Antioch decided we can't stay here, the gospel has made it all the way to Rome. In 18 years, the church had only made it as far as Judea and Samaria. In 18 years, they only got it as far as 300 miles north and 80 miles south. But in the next 20 years, it would make it thousands of miles away to Rome. Paul's arrested. Then he's released for a short time under house arrest. And that's why he rented his own house. And he stayed there under house arrest. And he began to tell people about Jesus. It's there that he's going to write letters like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He's going to write letters to some of the churches that he visited. He's going to address some of the issues that we contain in our New Testament. And there he is under house arrest. He's going to be released for a little while. But then Nero, the Roman emperor, is going to have Paul arrested once again. And he's going to be thrown in to confinement in one of Rome's darkest dungeons. We're told from church history and the best that we can figure out that somewhere around 66 AD, somewhere around 35 to 36 years after the resurrection, Paul was taken outside the city of Rome in a place that we do not know to this day where it was. And there he was executed as an enemy of the state for being a follower of Jesus.
but not before he had taken the message of Jesus to Rome, not before he wrote 13 of the 29 books of our New Testament, not before the West would begin to be introduced to the story of Jesus and ultimately set the stage for the whole empire to be toppled by this thing called the church. Once upon a time, there was a past generation of our faith that said, we can't stay here. And the world changed. Once upon a time, a group of people in Antioch, they got together and they said, God's doing something in our midst. Everybody's invited in, Jews and Gentiles alike. We're gonna tear down these walls and we're gonna let the world that everybody is welcome into this love and grace that Jesus has provided the world. We can't stay where we are. We gotta take it to the world. We gotta take it to the communities around us. We gotta take it to the nations around us. Once upon a time, there was a past generation of our faith that said, we can't stay here. And the world changed. What will future generations say about our once upon a time? Because history isn't made by those who sit still and stay where they are. 13 years ago or so, 2005, I showed up as pastor here at the Creek Church. But really going back about 15 years, a couple of years before I even showed up, there was a small group of people in this church that looked at each other one day and said, we can't stay here. We can't remain the way we are. We can't keep doing what we're doing the way that we're doing it. We got a job to do. There's a difference that we can make in the world. We can't stay here. So they, like the church at Antioch, begin to pray and some of them begin to fast and they begin to ask God, God, send us. God, do something through us. When I showed up, there was already a group of people. My first Sunday, there were 45 people in the church that Sunday. And things began to happen. God honored the prayer of those people who said, we can't stay here. We were in that little bitty brick church. Some of y'all have never seen it. You don't know anything about it, but we started in a little bitty brick church and things began to happen. It was a lot of fun. If you were here in those days, and some of you were, it was a lot of fun. It was small and it was cramped and sooner or later it got full. We looked at each other and as fun as it was in that brick building and as long as the church had been in that brick building since the late 60s, we realized we can't stay here. If for no other reason, we got too many people in this building and it's hotter than hell, literally. Most people got saved because they knew what hell was gonna be like. And we said, we can't stay here. So we went and we remodeled the gym next door. But I'm telling you, it was some of the funnest days. Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday. Hey, hey, hey. Church, multiple times, serving it up all through the week. And it got full once and then we launched a second service. And we bought property for parking. And it was fun, I mean, it was exciting. Sometimes we couldn't shut down the services because people just kept coming and giving their life to Jesus. It was just unbelievable. But it got to a point where we looked at each other one day and we said, as good as it is here, we can't stay here. 
And so we moved uptown and we rented a facility, the London Community Center. And we planned to be there for a little while, but we ended up being there for over three years. And it was a good place. It was a hard place. We set up, we tore down each and every week, but it was a good place. And God grew our church. And some of you, you came while we were there. You came as a result of some folks saying, we can't stay here. And we stayed there as long as we could. And then we decided again, we can't stay here. We moved into this building. And many of you came. And things began to happen. And it's been incredible. And when it would have been easy to do nothing, we decided, hey, you know what? We can't stay here. So we decided we need to launch a church in Somerset just like this church. We need to put a campus in Somerset in Pulaski County because there's a lot of folks from over there that's coming here. And that's what we did because we decided we can't stay here. And then we found the right man to lead the charge in Nate Heron. And God's doing a work over there. And God willing, this time next year, we'll probably be in a building. We can't stay here. And then when things was working good here and beginning to work good in Somerset, it would have been real easy to say, hey, this is a good place. We're in a good place. Let's just, let's just take it easy. Let's just slow down. But we looked at each other and we said, we can't stay here. And we launched the Creek Church Williamsburg. And today they're starting their first Sunday with two services. They've already filled up and now they've launched a second service already. We've gone from 45 that first Sunday of people saying we can't stay here till there'll be over 2,000 people at the Creek Church today. We've baptized over 1,600 people the last 12 years because some folks decided we can't stay here. We can't take our foot off the gas. We cannot back up. We gotta move forward. We can't afford not to stay here. We can't stay here. This is what it means. It means we opt for pain over comfort, change over status quo, and pushing over coasting and there over here. It means we pray big prayers like, God, give us Kentucky. God, give us Kentucky. This is our state. We are the fourth poorest state in all of the nation. God, give us Kentucky. We're top 10 in overdoses. 11% increase this year over last year. We're the fifth least educated state in all the country. We have the highest incident of cancer. We have the lowest life expectancy in the nation. We lead the way. We're near the top in depression, in the top near divorce. We're top 10 in suicides. One out of four of our children are in poverty. God give us Kentucky. We can't stay where we are. There's four million people in this state. One out of every two people don't claim faith. We can't stay here. We can't afford to stay here. 21 of the most 23 lost counties. They're east of 75, and we can't stay here. We can't afford to get comfortable, get complacent, get distracted, to coast, to settle, to let up. We cannot afford to stay here. We cannot afford to not believe that generosity changes lives. We cannot afford not to believe that we is greater than me. We cannot afford not to believe that it's better to serve than be served. We cannot afford not to believe that everyone can reach someone, that bridges are better than barriers, that there is better than here, that where we're going is better than where we've been. We can't stay here. Once upon a time, there was a past generation of our faith. They said, we can't stay here. And the world changed. What will the future generations say about our once upon a time? And I hope they say of us, when it was easy for them to settle, 
when it was easy for them to coast, when it was easy for them not to dig deep, they looked at each other and they said, we can't stay here because the future of faith has been entrusted upon our shoulders. What started in Jerusalem began anew in Antioch and let it happen again here at the Creek Church because we believe we cannot stay here. Heavenly Father, what you did in Antioch, do it again. God, what you have done in our church, God, do it again. God, we're not gonna be content with three or four or five or six or seven locations or campuses or churches. God, we're gonna go as far as you'll let us go. We're gonna go as hard as you'll let us go, as fast as you'll let us go. God, give us Kentucky. Give us a heart. Give us compassion. Give us vision. And may we believe with all of our hearts that where we're headed is better than where we've been. In Jesus' name.